when I was a young girl, I remember learning the adage, when you settle for less than you deserve, you get less than you settle for. And I can't think of a better situation to apply it to than dealing with the regime in Iran. We're inching closer and closer to a deal with a partner who is inching further and further away from compliance. At least in 2015, under the first Iran nuclear deal under President Obama, the Iran regime at least pretended to show some restraint and a softer tone under then Iran President Hassan Rouhani. But this time around, they know Washington wants that deal. Remember, President Biden and VP Harris campaigned on getting back into a deal. I don't remember hearing any conditions or good arguments for getting back into the deal. There was just one thing. Trump got us out, so we have to get back in. There's a civil war going on in the United States, and well, the Iranian regime is definitely benefiting. So now, under President Raisi in Tehran, a hardline butcher, as he's referred to, the Iran regime gets to have it all. The bad behavior, a meaningless nuclear deal that won't hold them to much, and of course, the removal of hard-hitting sanctions. Look, the Iran regime has carried on its bad behavior for decades. Ever since they came into power in 1979 and overthrowing the Shah of Iran, They've made it a priority to spread their brand of extremism throughout the region and the world. They created terror proxies like Hezbollah. They funded terror groups like Hamas and Palestinian Jihad, the Houthis in Yemen, the insurgencies in Iraq, the besieges and the Revolutionary Guardsmen in Syria, and not to mention the dozens of uh, suicide bombings and now cyber attacks that they're carrying out throughout the globe. And if you think they're conducting their shady business far, far over there in the Middle East for the past decade, they've been fixated on beefing up their assets in South America at our doorstep with heavy influence in Brazil and Bolivia and Venezuela and, and many other places. And if this weren't enough, the Iran regime is now threatening Americans right here on U.S. soil. They're, they've carried out high profile cyber attacks on significant infrastructures. And they brag about enriching uranium up to 60%. So any logical person would now ask, why are we at the negotiating table with in Vienna with an unwilling partner? And why are we the ones who are begging them for a deal? If you won't take my word for it, listen to the thousands of Iranians coming out onto the streets protesting a fraudulent government and a corrupt system. And if, if they don't want the regime, why are we the ones working so hard to legitimize them? What's this deal for? If the administration is the administration just nostalgic for Obama era policy, are they so attached to the Obama handbook that they can't divert? If they're not working in the name of regional and global security, and if it's not for the people of Iran, then who will this deal benefit other than a bunch of mullahs in Iran and their terror appendages around the world? Lots and lots of questions. And uh, we're fortunate enough to have the perfect person here to try to answer them for us. We're joined again by our good friend and friend of the Foreign Desk podcast, Victoria Coates. She's the senior fellow for the Security for Security Pol Center for Security Policy, former senior policy advisor to the Secretary of Energy, Deputy National Security Advisor for the Middle Eastern and North African Affairs under President Trump. And before that, National Security Advisor for Senator Ted Cruz. And of course, what many people don't know about her. She's brilliant. She's beautiful. She's eloquent. And of course, PhD in art history from the University of Pennsylvania to boot. And she's the author of David Sling, A History of Democracy in 10 Works of Art. Welcome back to the program, Victoria. Thank you so much, Lisa. Good to be with you. Victoria, well, um, I have you here for some so many reasons, right? Uh, originally, I wanted to ask you about two major headlines that we have about Iran today, this week. Um, but that was all eclipsed by the news that you, 
personally, Victoria Coates, were named along with 50 other um, advisors and, and, and military pe people who worked under uh, President Trump by the Iran regime. You have been you have been sanctioned, basically, personally sanctioned uh, over the 2020 killing of, uh, of military leader Qasem Soleimani. Um, how does it feel to be sanctioned by the Iran regime? Well, it is it is something of a of a badge of honor, I will say. Uh, they sanctioned us for what they referred to as terrorism and human rights violations, which is rich coming from one of the 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 world's largest engager in terrorism, and also one of the world's largest human rights abusers. Uh, so, so the whole thing was was something of a farce, but at the same time, it shows how little good faith they have in what they're theoretically engaging on in Vienna. I mean, for them to do this to a bunch of Americans as they're negotiating by proxy with with the current American regime, it, 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 just, it shows you who they are. And the Biden administration doesn't want to hear it. Right. So they're, it's like, it's like you're in, they're in, a, in a very dysfunctional relationship, right? So imagine you're, you're dating someone who's showing you all the red flags and they keep showing you more red flags. And they're saying, if you don't believe me, here's something even more egregious. And like you said, it just keeps getting worse, um, both at homes in terms of human rights, obviously uh, in the region uh, by, by supporting so much terrorism. And now at home, they have actually named uh, Americans. And so Jake Sullivan came out over the weekend and said um, there will be severe consequences if any Americans are um, attacked. Um, does he mean this? And are they really worried about any, God forbid, God forbid, assassinations being carried out on U.S. soil? Well, they should be today if they weren't over the weekend, because the Supreme Leader posted a video to his personal website of an assassination attempt on former President Trump. And I mean, you can't get more blatant than that. You know, the ruler of another country posting a video of your former president being assassinated on the golf course. So, you know, they they are sending the message loud and mm -hmm. clear. And I, I agree with your analogy. It's as if, you know, you have all of these abusive signs and yet you want to go waltzing in Vienna. Uh, and you, you can choose to decide because Vienna is beautiful that everything is fine or you can look at what's really going on. And so, as I said, I, I welcome National Security Advisor Sullivan's statement. It would be nice to have some outreach from the administration, uh, some inquiries about our personal safety. None of that has been forthcoming. Right. And, you know, like you said, there have already been you were quoted actually in, in a CBN piece um, saying, you know, that, that that we've seen examples of this before, um, whether there have been assassination attempts or kidnapping attempts, uh, activist and journalist Masi Alinejad, there was a foiled uh, plot to kidnap her. Um, and, and she's working, obviously, in, uh, in D.C. and New York on, on U.S. soil. Um, we've seen the bad behavior. So what I mean, why the empty threats? Meaning, if if the Biden administration is going to go forth and excuse all this bad behavior and you know forget the inconvenient truths of, as I've always called them, of what the Iranian regime is, then why not just go forward with that? Why are they now, you know, they're almost you know answering symbolic threats with symbolic threats? We're, we're gonna, you know, you better not. But meanwhile, they have and they continue to. I think we also have, I mean, one, one of the things that's fueling what you're rightly identifying as a disconnect is the fact that we have a structural problem with what's going on uh, in these negotiations, which is that the Iranians from the, the 
about this time last year, uh, refused to just talk directly to the Americans. So we are negotiating by proxy. So think about it this way. The Chinese and the Russians get to talk to everybody, but we don't. Uh, and by doing that, the Iranians have symbolically isolated us. They've also made us dependent on interlocutors to carry our messages and with various issues of translation and whisper down the lane. I mean, even if the administration was sending a really strong message, I don't know that it would be easy to convey it because the Biden administration preemptively surrendered uh, direct negotiations. And the I mean, maybe you do that for a day or two and then say, we're, we're leaving unless you guys will meet directly. But they never did that. Right. And um, you know, I want to go back to what you referred, because that's um, one of one of the big stories I wanted to discuss today. Um, speaking of hypocrisy, we have big tech and in this case, um, Twitter, the incestuous cousin of the White House right now, um, who over the weekend, we, we saw this this tweet come out of um, the threat being made against uh, former uh, President Trump. Um, former President Trump really got under their skin, didn't he? I mean, um, wh whether it was the killing of, of Qasem Soleimani or the, the sanctions that were truly hard hitting for the first time, um, they want to take revenge. But Twitter thinks it's fine. I mean, they took President Trump off of Twitter, but it's okay for our enemies to use that platform to convey all the threats they want. No, there doesn't seem to be an Islamist terrorist that's too foul for, for Twitter to actually ban them while a former president of the United States is, is fair game. And I, you know, I, I just couldn't agree more strongly uh, that, that, that this is really a disgrace, that, that this is allowed to stand. And I, I certainly agree that with President Trump, the Iranian regime had an American administration that would keep them off guard. They weren't sure what was going to happen next. And I can speak from personal uh personal experience that he was completely sincere in his offer to meet with them. But again, he wouldn't do it by proxy. He was like, if, if we're going to meet, then I'm going to meet with the Supreme leader. He understood that uh, Rouhani and now Raizi were, are simply stand-ins for what the uh, Supreme leader wants to do. And so he was very clear, you know, if, if you, the true leader of Iran would like to meet with the true leader of the United States, we will do that. And they will be with no preconditions. They, of course, thought it would be ducky if we lifted all the sanctions, and, you know, in return for some sort of lower level meeting. But that wasn't what he wanted. And he then followed up with with actions that made it clear that that their actions had ramifications, that there would be consequences. And, you know, when they killed contractors and continued shelling uh, civilian ships in that was when you know the president made the decision about Qasem Soleimani, and then they really knew there were going to be consequences. Since you did work behind the scenes, I know um, you said it perfectly that that the Iranians didn't know what was coming next. I think um, President Trump appeared to be you know all over the place and maybe erratic, maybe in his tweets, but perhaps not in his policy because he had people like you and others working behind the scenes uh, to come up with a, a solid and sound policy, particularly when it comes to Iran. What was, if you could briefly summarize, what was um, the the short and long term game plan vis-a-vis -vis Iran in the White House under Trump? Well, the president was very clear that that he thought the JCPOA was a terrible deal, one of the worst in history, 
because his goal was to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. That was always first and foremost in his mind. And then he wanted to stop them from having missile systems to deliver those weapons. And he wanted to uh, to deter them from deploying regional terrorist proxies. And so, you know, as, as he understood it, the problem was that even with the uh, sanctions that Congress had put on, some from the Obama administration, but mostly through Congress, there was a reduction in Iranian economic activity, but that was being offset by smuggling by the waivers that had been put on for South Korea, India, China, Japan. So they were still exporting a lot of oil. And, you know, as a business guy, the president understood that if you wanted to stop them from sending $900 million a year to Hezbollah in Lebanon, get rid of the 900 million. And that that is one of the great strengths we as the United States have. If you give other countries up to and including China a choice between doing business with Iran or doing business with the United States around the world, the choice will be the United States because, you know, Iran has very little to offer. So that was the genesis of the maximum pressure campaign uh, and which was bearing tremendous fruit, giving us enormous leverage over the Iranians. And then what you started to see with some kinetic actions, particularly I should have mentioned the attack on Saudi Arabia on Aptek in September of, of 2019, that the United States wasn't just going to tolerate this. You couldn't just punch us, punch us, punch us. And we would just, you know, ask for more that, that, you know, you can you can dance right up to the line, but when you step over it, then we're going to whack you, and you're not going to like it. And that, you know, interestingly, after the Soleimani action, there was not a peep out of Iran for quite some time. Uh, after the Biden administration came in, we saw a dramatic escal escalation of activities, particularly out of Yemen, but also in in Lebanon and Gaza, uh, which I don't think they would have dared if President Trump were still in the White House. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of of using uh, President Trump as the boogeyman, it's not just in Tehran. It's here in Washington as well. There's a scoop um, overnight by Axios. We reported on this at the Foreign Desk today as well um, that talks about how um, two sources uh, talked about now going forward in the next two weeks, the uh, Biden administration feels like it's going to be do or die at the negotiating table with Iran. So their um, strategy for the next couple of weeks will be um, focus the fire on Trump. And that's a quote. They're going to focus the fire on Trump, meaning they will uh, convey to the Iranians that it was all of Trump's fault for getting out of this deal, uh, uh, the 2015 deal, and putting us in this mess to begin with. So let's work together to build it back, meaning they're willing to step on a former U.S. president, an American president, in order to get closer to our enemies. I mean, it's it's just mind boggling. And, you know, I think we can expand this out to what's been going on over the last couple of days with the vote on the Nord Stream 2 sanctions in the U.S. Senate led by my old boss, Senator Cruz, uh, in which the White House deployed teams of senior administration officials basically to lobby the Congress on behalf of Russia to lobby the Congress not to do this. And in this case, they're basically saying the former Trump administration is a bigger enemy than the Iranian regime, which is just bizarre. And, you know, I think they need to take a good hard look at this and realize the enemies that we have include the Russians, the Iranian regime, 
not necessarily their fellow Americans. Uh, you know, and I was very heartened to see former Ambassador Dennis Ross lead a group of all Democrat former national security officials in a statement out earlier, I think last week, uh, saying that the United States needed a credible military deterrent to Iran. This is all Democrats mm -hmm. uh, saying that, that this administration had no credible deterrent and they needed one if they were going to have any kind of effective diplomacy. So the administration might, might want to look around, see it's not just the evil Republicans uh, who have this kind of a policy, but it's it's a lot of very responsibly minded Democrats as well. So, I mean, let's get down to the, the root of this. Why? Why? I mean, in 2015, we can go back to 2015 because it looks like this administration doesn't really have um, any ideas of its own that they're going back because it was struck in 2015 by the almighty uh, President Obama and then President Trump withdrew. So then it mu we must do the 180, right? We must get back in. But why? Are there any real concrete reasons in terms of policy that this administration thinks we should get back into that deal? I think in a way it's a lack of policy. I think they are not interested in the Middle East. Uh, for them, the Middle East it, it exists solely to have fossil fuels. Uh, they're not terribly enthusiastic about the alliance with Israel. And given left to their own devices, they would be very much about pushing this extraordinary socialist agenda here at home. That's where they want to focus their energies, their resources. They want to remake American society uh, in this kind of, of sort of socialist mode that will make American citizens very dependent on the government, which they think, I mean, to be charitable, I mean, they, I assume they think this is a good thing for some reason. Uh, now, what that results in, because you can say, I'm not interested in the Middle East. You can say, I don't like fossil fuels and we're going to have wind and solar. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not reality. So we had the sort of pitiful spectacle uh, on the eve of Glasgow of the American, the big UN climate hootenanny of the American president basically begging the Saudis to pump more oil. The same Saudis that he has denigrated and insulted at every turn. Uh, then suddenly he's accusing them of being the reason that Americans can't drive to work because prices are too high, not right. because of his completely irresponsible energy policy and his alienation of one of our great historic allies with whom a, a new future of energy cooperation is entirely possible. Yeah. But they threw that all away. So I think I think what you're seeing is really a lack of policy. The default option is get back in the JCPOA. Then you've checked the Middle East box and we can go back mm -hmm. to build back better. Build back better. Right. So what what do the next what should we expect? One year down, three to go. Uh, what should we expect with regards to, first of all, Iran policy and secondly, Middle East as a whole? Are we going to you know, maybe we can talk about the Abraham Accords a bit. But what, what are you seeing? Well, I, I I think the best we can hope for from this crowd is a policy of benign neglect, that they could just stay out of it. Um, it on the ground, organically, good things are happening. The relationships between the UAE, Israel, and Bahrain, for example, growing relationships with Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Oman, these are all great things. Uh, Morocco, of course, in, in Northern Africa, and hopefully that can expand. I mean, there was a report yesterday that Libya is considering normalizing with Israel. What a wonderful idea. How much help could Israel be to getting 
Libya back onto a stable footing. So, I mean, that's all really positive. None of it is happening because of the administration's efforts. So hopefully they would just stay out of that. Uh, and so I think I think that is the best we can hope for. My great concern is, and this may be something you want to talk about more in depth, is that what the Iranians have done over the last year in terms of developing their nuclear program since President Trump was out of office has perhaps gone beyond the point of no return. Once you know how to build an enhanced centrifuge, once you've enriched up to 60%, it is a very small hop to 90 you can't put that knowledge out of somebody's brain. And, and they, of course, have no interest in doing that. So if they've spent this year developing the capability to achieve a nuclear weapon, then it, it's their choice when they choose to deploy that capability. And, you know, then you're not just in a bipolar world where, you know, Iran and, and one of their neighbors might have a nuclear weapon, sort of like India and Pakistan, because it's not going to stop there. And, you know, many of our Gulf allies have been very frank that if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, they would be irresponsible towards the security of their own citizens if they did not also pr pursue nuclear capability. And where that ends, nobody knows. Um, because if you suddenly have four or five nuclear powers across the Middle East, it, it's an extremely unstable game. And I don't know who could control all of that. And, you know, accidents happen. You know, situations get out of control. Escalations happen. That's a really dangerous world. And that would be my great concern looking forward. Yeah, um, it looks well, France is is concerned that this is not going fast enough, right? Because they want to wrap it up and um, put a little pretty bow on it and, and, and go back to Paris to eat their croissants. And of course, the um, Biden administration has already kind of have, has already unlocked all the locks, right? So they've put into place, um, instead of 60%, we've moved to 90%. It used to be that snapback you could could mean any any transgression, but now it has to go up to 90%. So they basically have to be on the one yard line in order for us to say, mm -hmm. wait a minute, you know, which as you mentioned would be too late. So it looks like it's not a matter of if, but when uh, this deal is announced. Um, what recourse do we have after this administration, if there should be either a more um, a, a more center leaning uh, democratic uh, president or uh, maybe a Republican one, um, what recourse do we then have to get out of another nuclear deal? Well, it's an interesting question. I might take a small issue with what you said about the French. They're not just going, I'm sure they are going back to eat croissants, but they're not just going back to Paris to eat croissants. They're going back to Paris for a presidential election. And so you have President Macron, you know, trying to position himself as an international statesman, a bringer of peace, et cetera. The other thing that I'm sure has not escaped any of your listeners' uh, attention is the fact that there's going to be an election in the United States in 10 months. And the Iranians are also watching that very, very closely. And the problem with all of these shenanigans in Vienna is if they do not pass whatever Frankenstein version of JCPOA comes out of that negotiation, if they do not pass that through either through the Senate as a treaty or through both houses of Congress as a law, there is nothing that protects it from a future administration. And there are going to be all sorts of intellectual gymnastics that will go on trying to give the Iranians which, what they're asking for, which is some kind of guarantee of the durability of the deal. There is no such thing. 
And every private company that even considers going into Iran on official projects, you know, in energy infrastructure, all the stuff they desperately need to have done, and which I would love to have American companies leading the way on with a future Iranian uh, regime. But if anybody goes in and starts those projects, they are doing a grave disservice to their shareholders because there's every reason to expect that in November of next year, or actually January, when the new Congress is sworn in that one of their first orders of business is going to be to reimpose every sanction that is available to the Congress. Uh, and then a future administration can simply do what President Trump did and, and withdraw from the deal. I mean, technically what you do is you cease compliance with it because it was never signed. And this notion that we somehow the United States gave their word, no, that's what a treaty is for, not something that's implemented by the United Nations Security Council. Right. And for those who, uh, and this will be my, my last question um, to you, I, I, I sometimes wonder what people think, because we have so much hypocrisy in this country, right? We just talked about big tech's hypocrisy. There's so much media hypocrisy, right? So they'll talk about women's rights. But when it comes to the women's rights in Iran or Afghanistan, there's silence. You know, they don't talk about it. You know, they don't ever want it to um upset the image that people have of, of what's going on at the White House. So we didn't do anything wrong in Afghanistan, of course, and we have to get back into the Iran nuclear deal. So we definitely don't want to talk about their human rights uh, violations. Um, we know that the Iranian regime was pining for President Biden to win this uh, presidential election over President Trump. I mean, you know, obviously, the media is complicit in painting the picture that they paint. But where are our, our average Americans on these stories? Is it just because we're, you know, avoiding uh, foreign policy? Do people not care? And I get it. There's so much going on in this country that, you know, people, you know, they're, they're worried about the school board meeting more so than, than what's going on, on on the floor of Congress. But, you know, how can we get people's attention, not just on foreign policy, but on this hypocrisy, on the fact that if we believe one thing, that should carry out that standard, that value should carry, you know, on into to other places and we should see things for, for what they are, like the Iranian regime. Well, I think that's where truth tellers like you, Lisa, are so critically important to bring other perspectives, you know, to your listeners and viewers and to a, hopefully an ever wider audience. Uh, you know, human rights is a great example of, of one of the you know, sort of the conundrums of making a national security policy, which is, of course, for the United States, we stand for human rights, but we can't do that at the expense of our national security interests. And what the Biden administration has done is case in point. You know, they have abandoned the women of Iran, they have abandoned the women of Afghanistan while trying to uh, trying to withhold military support for the government of Egypt based on 13 journalists that either have or have not been detained, whose names they won't release. And, you know, it, 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 I'm not saying press freedom in Egypt isn't important. It is. But is it worth sort of draconing, in a draconian fashion, just cutting off the national security of the United States without at least getting sort of clear answers about what actually is going on. And so I think, you know, you we always want to retain human rights as a tool and something that we can can use to bring, you know, hope to the afflicted, freedom to the oppressed. You know, that that's been our history over, you know, our our 
200 plus years. And we can continue to do that while also defending the United States. Uh, and so I think they, they've been sort of reverse selective. They've, they've focused on small uh, sort of murky things and missed the big picture on human rights. But just finally, in terms of the American people, you know, people have long memories and a lot of people remember 1979 and a lot of people remember uh, all of the bad deeds of the Iranian regime. And they know that they're not our friends. And I would say increasingly we see in the midterm races a focus on some of these issues. China mm -hmm. is a major issue. China has major implications for the Middle East. Israel is a huge issue. People don't understand why we wouldn't be embracing our great ally, Israel. Why are we being harsh and, and punitive towards them? Uh, and so I think, I think, you know, maybe they don't know all of the complexities of what's going on in Yemen, but, you know, that's the job of policymakers to keep it that way. But I think on the big picture issues, they do understand. And, and that is a great opportunity, I think, for people who do cherish and celebrate the national security of the United States to communicate that message. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Victoria. I can go on and on with you. Um, brilliant and articulate. And you break down these very difficult to understand subjects so well for us. You're always welcome to come back to our show. And I hope that you will very soon. Perhaps we can talk about China next time. Uh, and until then, do follow Victoria on Twitter. She's wonderful. She tweets uh, a whole lot of important and, and informative uh, tweets. And uh, to follow us here at The Foreign Desk, you can subscribe to our podcast at youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. And to sign up for our daily top 10 Lisa, uh, list, you can go to foreigndesknews.com and we will see you all next week.